0: John 7, please, if you would turn with me there. We'll be studying verses 1 through 24. And I'll begin us by reading just a few verses from the middle, and we'll read the entirety of the text once we dive into the, the substance of the sermon As you turn there, I just want to say, this should be obvious, you would hope this would be true of whoever's preaching, I love our King, I love our King, and I love His people. I love our church. You know, the the ministry of of a Sunday morning isn't confined to what takes place from here to, to there over the next hour. It's all of us celebrating Christ, edifying one another in song and prayer and in our listening and application of God's Word. So, I just want to say, you guys minister to me well on Sundays, and I'm grateful for your ministry in song and prayer. And I pray that now I could be of some blessing to you as we look to John 7 And I'll just begin by reading verses 10 through 12 so you catch the tone of what's happening here. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. It's clear here that people misunderstood who Jesus was, what he came to do. And such misunderstanding is common, especially of historical figures. If you think back to some of the most supposedly well-known individuals in all of history, further research will reveal that we probably had them all wrong. Examples uh, could include someone as famous as Alexander Graham Bell. You would think, based on what you've heard and based on what you've read, oh, this is the guy that invented the telephone. That's not true. He was the one to patent the telephone. Another guy invented it, but he didn't have the money to secure the patent. Or maybe uh, we think back to uh, a, further, a little further back in American history to someone as famous as Pocahontas. I mean, we all know from the Disney movie that she marries John Smith. But she didn't marry John Smith. <laughs> I don't even know the guy's name that she did marry, but it wasn't Smith. Smith. And yet we think that this is some picture of the harmonious relations of the Americans and the Indians in the early days. And we just happen to be, you know, a little off in that. Uh, One more, just as it comes to mind. You imagine uh, someone as famous as Leonardo da Vinci. And just like, oh, I know him. He was that really famous painter. Now, if I understand correctly, he was actually not famous I think he only sold one painting in his entire lifetime, but he became famous later. Misunderstanding. Means little though, like it's not going to change your lunch today whether or not Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone or not. It's not going to have any practical impact on your week whether Pocahontas married John Smith or some other guy. And really, what is the eternal significance of Leonardo da Vinci being famous in his lifetime or after his lifetime? Misunderstanding of most historical figures means little to nothing for our everyday existence. But misunderstanding of the historical figure named Jesus Christ makes all the difference, not only both here and now, but for eternity. The most important question that could ever be asked to you is, who is Jesus? That's the most important question. The second most important question is similar to the first, but not the same. Not just who is Jesus, but who is Jesus to you? Do you see the difference between the two? One is about identity, who He is. That does not change. The second is about understanding. Who do you understand Him to be? It's the difference between life and eternity. Who Jesus is does not change. It is clearly revealed in the Word. But as you read John chapters 7 and 8 closely, you're going to find out that there's a whole heap of ways to understand who Jesus is to you. I mean we just saw a couple of examples in this text some people thought he was a good guy some people thought he was leading them astray some people wondered if he was the messiah some people thought that he was an enemy of the state i mean you read seven and eight and they belong together it's all the same event same timeline minus the story of the woman caught in adultery at john 8 we'll cover that another time but just take seven and eight together for a moment and if you were to read it this week you'd be like wow, there's a whole heap of confusion going on here. And it kind of makes you wonder, like, why does John spend so much time talking about why people are confused about Jesus? Well, it's because of what I just said. The most important question that we could ever answer is who is Jesus? We don't want to get that wrong. And then the second one is who is Jesus to us? John is not only writing to tell us who Jesus is, but he's writing so that we would believe in him believe in Him as the Messiah, believe in Him as the Son of God, anything close to that or less than that is eternally damning. So, this is a huge question. We don't want to misunderstand Jesus, not only for the sake of our own souls, but for the sake of those that we love, for the sake of those who are around us. And so, we have an expose here in these 24 verses about uh, on expose regarding the misunderstandings of the Messiah. There are three of them here. Three ways people misunderstand the Messiah. Shortly, just in quick form, people misunderstand his timing, his teaching, and his task. We'll walk through each of them as the text unfolds. But let's begin with seeing how people then and now misunderstand the timing of the Messiah. You'll find that in verses one through nine. Let's just read the first couple verses. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. This is pretty basic standard form of the gospel narrative. We're just saying we're moving on from the events of the bread of life discourse. And you remember at that time, this is important, that people were beginning to leave Jesus. He was like at the peak of his popularity, right at the end of the feeding of the 20,000 plus. And as he began to teach the significance of that miracle, people got a little disturbed and then they started arguing over it, and then they were really unsettled, ending with the fact that several of them just walk away, and it seems like the only people left are the 12. The crowd is starting to go down, and not only that, we go back to chapter 5 that Noah read for us earlier, and we find out that in Jerusalem, a totally different place, Jerusalem's down here, Galilee's up here, Samaria's in between, so they're, kind of, they're both Israel, but they're like, politically different places. Down in Jerusalem, he ticked them all off good fashion. That's a southern phrase. That just means he made a lot of people very angry to the degree that they wanted him dead. So Jesus says, all right, logically, uh, I, I don't want to die yet. Now, it's just interesting because like most of you in here know that he, he has come to die. But he doesn't want to die yet. So what does he do? He hangs out in Galilee. It's a different political province. Even though people are leaving him, nobody necessarily wants to kill him. But there's a dilemma because a feast comes up. Now, for, for us, the word feast, you know, like means very little. Uh, American holidays don't require our religious observance like Jewish holidays would have. There were three holidays in particular that that Jewish men, as heads of their households, were actually required to go to as often as they possibly could. The most popular one that you know of is Passover. It takes place in the spring, and that was probably what was going on in John 5. The one that you don't know as much about but is actually more popular in the mind of the Jew in the first century is tabernacles or booths or tents. Uh, I like the way that the Holman Christian Standard Bible puts it. It called it the Festival of Tents. It's a little more illuminating, right? Like there's a festival, it's a big party, and it has something to do with tents. It was pretty cool. It was the end of harvest, and to celebrate harvest and to celebrate the fact that God had always provided for them, even when they were on the run, everybody would break out the tent they put it on their roof if they needed to because they didn't have yards. Or people from the surrounding area would go to Jerusalem and s- literally set up tents all over Jerusalem, and for seven days they just camp out. They, what are they doing? They're celebrating the fact that God has provided for them. They're remembering the fact that they were once kind of on the run. I imagine it would be a pretty cool thing to like even go attend today if it was still being observed to the same way. Also, wrapped up in this, we'll see more of this in a couple weeks, but there would be special ceremonies where water would be poured out to remind them of how God provided water through the rock. There would be special ceremonies where uh, torches would be lit to also remind them of God leading them by that pillar of fire. It was an amazing time. Josephus, the Jewish historian that many of you would know, would actually say that it was the most important and most well attended of all the Jewish festivals. So what does that mean for Jesus? Well, people in Jerusalem want to kill him. Tabernacles would require him to go down to Jerusalem. Therefore, the question is, does Jesus go to the festival like a good Jew, or does he avoid it and save his life? You get it? The pressure gets turned up a few more degrees because it's his brothers in particular that are like, hey, let's go to this together. In a strong group culture, you do what your family does. And so, he is actually given the opportunity here to do this with his brothers. Look at verse 3. His brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, I'm not reading verse 5 on purpose. Just read verses 3 and 4 for a second, and you're like, oh, wow, these guys are looking out for Jesus. They want his ministry to succeed, and maybe they do. I mean, after all, like how would you feel if your brother got really, really popular, but then all of a sudden his popularity was declining? I mean, giving them the benefit of the doubt, you'd be like, hey, you need to stop doing your little karaoke thing in these local dives, and you need to get on Jerusalem's Got Talent. Like, You need to go big, well-intended. We don't know, but if they're well-intended, they just want Jesus to be more popular. If they're selfish, maybe it is, hey, go do miracles there. We're going to be with you, and then we can be popular. Or maybe they're being sarcastic. Oh, you say you're doing this stuff? If you really want to do it, go do it down in Jerusalem. I mean, if you really want a following, you would do it where it counts, not just up here in our local county. We don't know the tone, but what we do know is that they did not believe in him. Look at verse five. For that's a a reason. Why did they say what they just said? For not even his brothers believed in him. This wasn't an expression of faith. This is if it's positive, this is defective discipleship. It's what we were talking about yesterday. They only wanted Jesus who will be really, really popular. Uh, when we were studying John three, we differentiated between bogus belief and bona fide belief. Bogus belief was when somebody really wants to believe in Jesus for all the amazing things that He can do for them. Uh, it's possible that that's the way that they were believing, but the Bible calls that not real belief at all. Or maybe they were just skeptical of Him. I mean, it becomes clear that no one really received. I mean, none of His brothers really received Him till after the resurrection. Maybe they don't even believe. You know the old saying, a prophet is not without honor except for in his own country? Maybe that's the reply here. But what they want him to do is to go. This is two things you need to understand. They want him to go with them to the Feast of Booths immediately. And I looked up a good word. I'm so excited about this one. You can look it up too. You need to use this in your vocabulary this week. Immediately and resplendently. Isn't that awesome? You don't even know what it means, but you just know it sounds extravagant. Another one, ostentatiously. Don't worry. I did look those up. I did not know what those words meant. I had to look them up. But I was like, what word is the best for what they want? They want it to be a big show. I don't know what this phrase means, but it kind of, like, it means something to me. They want it to be a dog and pony show. You know, they, they want people to make a spectacle out of Jesus. They want him to be on display. They want him to shine. So when they're talking about his time, they say, hey, you go do this right now, and you go do this in such a way that you draw to yourself maximum attention. Now, that's really important. We're going to stick with the first two words, immediately, resplendently. But how does Jesus respond to their offer for immediate and extravagant popularity? Notice verse 6. He said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Notice this. He corrects them. He is letting them know something, that that he works on a different timetable than they do. Their thought is, Hey, do it big, do it now. And Jesus is saying, I don't work that way. You're of the world, and as such, any day can be your day. You want to go up, have a party, you want to make the Feast of Tabernacles about you, doesn't bother me one bit, but that's not my time. I'm not working on your timetable. I am up to something else, to something different. I am in contrast to the world. The world hates me. They don't hate you, So you can go up to the feast, it's not going to be a problem, but if I go up to the feast in the way that you want it, we will prematurely start the dying process. The world here has normally, in John meant just the created universe, anybody, everybody. Here it is specifically referring to that deep-seated attitude that turns away from the loving Creator and tries to organize its life independently of Him. I'm going to repeat that. It's a good definition of the world. I take it from one smarter than I. It means the deep-seated attitude that turns away from the loving Creator and tries to organize its life independently of Him. Here, they're operating independently of God's plan. They, They don't bring any challenge to God's ways. But what happens if Jesus goes up? Let's just play this out for a second. What's going to happen if Jesus actually goes up with them in the way that they want him to go? Well, um, if he does this, it means that the crowd will more easily identify him on account of his associations with his family. So they would have recognized his family. They would have stayed in the same places. It's kind of like a family that goes to vacation at like the same RV park or the same resort at the same time every year. You know, you kind of get to know the people that are around you. If Jesus just goes up with his family and does the normal thing, it's going to be like really clear like, hey, this is Jesus. He's here. But there's another problem with that. So we've got the popularity problem, but then there's the persecution problem. Because you need to remember something, the last time he was in Jerusalem, he provoked and embarrassed the religious leaders at another highly attended festival the months before. And it was in that time, and we didn't read this that much today, but in John 5, if you continue reading past where we read earlier, he said to the religious establishment of the day, to the rulers, imagine like all, like, the county commissioners of Jerusalem, if you will. It's like he stood up in front of them at at one of their committee meetings, and he accused them of not knowing God, of not abiding in his word, of not having the love of God within them, of seeking the glory of one another instead of seeking the glory of God, and abiding under the condemnation of the law of Moses. And by the way, he did this without any religious position or warrant. I don't... I don't know if you get it, but like we don't normally challenge people that well. I mean, he just straight up said that about supposedly the most holy people on the planet. That's why they wanted to kill him. And so what we see here is that Jesus is aware of a time that is coming which hasn't come yet. He's like a skilled sailor watching for the moment that the tide begins to turn, checking the forecast, holding out for just the right moment when it will be full enough to set sail. He has a plan in mind, and he's going to bring it to light at the right time. And the plan, as John has already been hinting to us, has a Passover shape to it and not a tabernacle shape. You know what I'm saying? There are things about the festival of booths, the festival of tabernacles, which Jesus regards as pointing forward to his own achievement. That is true. We will see that. But Passover is when the lamb will be sacrificed, not tabernacles. Are you seeing how Jesus' timing is different than theirs? That's why he says in verse 8, you can see it there in your text, Y'all go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After this, he remained in Galilee. For those of you who read ahead, I know that there's a burning question here. Like, why does he say that he's not going to the feast, but then he does go to the feast? We'll talk about it. For the moment, can we just grasp the fact that Jesus' timetable works differently than ours? Can we avoid that simple misunderstanding? Can we be corrected here? Some people do not believe in Jesus because they think He should work in the time frame that they have for Him and not His own time frame. It was Ecclesiastes 3, 1-8 that provided that timeless, not just Jewish, but biblical wisdom. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal. The verse continues all the way through verse 8, giving us all these categories of like, okay, there's times for certain things And we need to be aware of that. And you need to know that if that's true of, like, times to sleep and times to rise and times to be sick and times to be healthy and times to sow and times to plant, guess what? There is a right time and a wrong time for Jesus to show up, show himself to the world as the dying sacrificial lamb. It doesn't just happen whenever they jolly well please. It happens on God's timetable. That's why Paul would say, in two different instances, just listen to these. You can jot them down. No need to turn there. Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Listen to this one, Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Are you picking up what Paul's laying down? It's not just any old time. There was a perfect time. It needed to be a Passover time. And so, friends, timing in Christ is different than ours. It is is better than ours. And I want you to know that It isn't just the Jewish multitudes of that original day. It isn't just the Jewish leaders. There are people still here today that could even be sitting among us right now who are like, I'm not really going to believe in Jesus because he doesn't work in the time that I think he should. kind of reminds me, our impatience with God's timing, reminds me of like a 14-year-old that wants to drive right now. I don't know if you've ever driven with a 14-year-old, we experiment from time to time at my house, admittedly. Golf carts or the church parking lot. Thankfully, my 14-year-old is humble enough to realize it's not time yet. But when I was 14, I thought for sure, I've got this. Just set me loose behind the wheel. What is the problem with the state of North Carolina? Like, if people can drive tractors at 12 years old, why can't I drive a vehicle on the road? And it's just the foolishness. Of course, every one of us, as we get older, are like, I think 16's too early. They should be handing out these things at 25. (laughs) We all have this just fundamental instinct to, like, say... Yeah, I know how this should plan out. I I know how this should play out. I I know timing. And what the passage is reminding us, don't judge Jesus on the basis of your timing. Don't judge Jesus on the basis of what you think he should be doing right now. ASAP. This is the way that I most often hear it from non-Christians. If he's really Lord of the universe... Can he not just right now cure cancer, cease, war, show up and sit on a visible throne ruling over this crazy corrupt universe? You ever hear that? Why doesn't he work in amazing and stupendous ways immediately right now? And this is nothing short of unbelief. It's a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. He works in a different way. He was going to die at the right moment. He was going to rise again at the right moment. He would return to heaven at the right moment. And guess what? He's going to return to the earth at the right moment. He's not subject to your timing. One person said it this way. The particular problem which gives this gospel its flavor is this. Jerusalem and its leadership and opinion formers, both official and unofficial, have come to embody the attitudes of the world. Remember that group of people that are in opposition to God? They don't buy into his planning, his timing. When Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he is indeed showing himself to the world, but it is a world turned against God, and it continues to outwardly celebrate and not recognize his strange and loving purposes. Look, people just don't want what Jesus is offering. They're misunderstanding his timing. That's true of non-Christians. And you know what you need to do, friends? You've got to let them know he doesn't work on your timetable. Just as you wanted your license when you were 14 and somebody else knew better, so also Jesus knows better. He knows when he should return. He knows when he should do his thing. Like we're all in this boat together. And I would say this for personally, for those of you who do believe, he knows, therefore, friends, this is it's not what the sermon is exactly about, but we would be unwise to, to rush over this too quickly. Jesus knows that you're suffering right now in this moment is sure. It's guaranteed. He promised it. Like, I don't know why, like, we follow Jesus and then all of a sudden start thinking that our life gets better. He promised that it would get worse. He said that we're taking up a cross to follow him. Like, the glory is coming later. Persecution is persistent now. Look, I, I, I can... I can complain with the best of you guys. I promise I can. You're getting around. You want to have coffee. You want to talk about how the world's going to hell on a handbasket and talk about how bad the news is and what the president's up to or whatever. I can do that. I can do it for about 20 minutes. I get tired of it. I complain about complaining, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, sometimes like when I'm in, don't worry, I get there too. Sometimes when I'm in that moment, it's like I get woken up and I'm like, what in the world did I expect? Like he said, like he, he said it. He said, he said that it was like the world will hate me, will hate us. And, and we're wondering like why they're not preaching the gospel in public schools and why they're not legislating, you know, like church attendance and gospel. Read. I mean, like it's just not going to happen. say this prayers seem unanswered for now it gets really personal because you pray for stuff and you're like god this just makes sense this is i'm asking this in your name why don't you turn this thing around he will but just not now do you see how this is a corrective to our misunderstanding of jesus It applies broadly to the world. It applies particularly to us. The point is that our Lord is often misunderstood, specifically on account of his timing. But that's not the only way the Messiah is misunderstood. In verses 10 to 18, we see that people also misunderstand the teaching of the Messiah. So they misunderstand his timing, but they also misunderstand his teaching In these verses that we're about to read together, the scene transitions from the safety of Galilee to the scrutiny of Jerusalem. It is a scene change for sure. But what I want you to note specifically as we read this, because some of you had a question about Jesus going up to the temple, what I want you to note carefully as we read verse 10 is to see how Jesus goes at a different time and in a different way than his brothers demanded. And then we'll look at the buzz about Jerusalem as he makes his way there. Look at verse 10. Please follow it uh, in in your own copy of God's Word. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Just pause there. The word uh, private, it's a helpful time to do some Greek, is krupto. Crypto. it's where we get our word cryptic or maybe more popular in our technological society, encryption. I do not know how encryption works. All I know is it supposedly makes secret a message that I'm sending to someone else across the Internet. That's what Jesus did here. He made himself secret. He didn't go. It's the opposite of the word that was used earlier. Do you remember that? What did they say they wanted him to do? They said, why don't you go openly? What does he do here? He goes secretly. In private, not in public. When he did not have his disciples or family with him, he could travel incognito. So in the middle of the feast, our Lord chose to go to Jerusalem. (laughs) I I was wondering, uh, admittedly, you know, like... In what way did Jesus disguise himself? Like, did he wear a mustache? You know, like, what does it mean to go in secret? Did he, did he like, wear a hood? I, 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 honestly, it's so funny how Star Wars pervades every part of my uh, existence. Like, I was thinking, like, you know, maybe he did, like, you know, this is not the Jesus you're looking for, you know, kind of thing. You know, but I then started thinking about it more, and I'm like, no, it's just because he didn't go with his family. It's not like there were pictures of Jesus floating around. There's no internet. He can go up just as a guy without his entourage and it'll be less known like who he actually is. So he does go up, but remember the two ways in particular that they wanted him to go? We said, what, immediately and the fancy word? Resplendently. Thank you, all eight of you who remembered. Well, let's think about it. If For those of you who would think, oh, well, Jesus contradicts himself here, I have two questions for you. One, did he go up immediately? No. He remained in Galilee a few days, and then he went later. Question number two, did he go up resplendently, ostentatiously? Did he draw attention to himself? No, he did in secret. So anyway, I just want to help you understand when you come across what could seem like a conflict In the Bible, it's probably because we weren't looking that carefully at what the text said. They wanted Jesus to go up a certain way. He didn't go up that certain way. But here's the deal He comes into a conflict, uh, He comes into a context of conflicted opinions. This is what we read earlier in verses 11 to 13, right? Everybody's on the lookout for Him. There's a buzz about Him. I don't know if you ever use noise machines. I do. Maybe it's because I have five kids or I'm ADD. I love some some good quality noise. Put the earbuds in. White noise is one of my favorite. But another one that I've stumbled across of late that I like is called Cocktail Voices. Have you ever seen Cocktail Voices? It's awesome. It's perfect for a coffee shop because it sounds like a bunch of people muttering. like And like you think that there's a, but you can't discern a single word. That's what I hear, like, as I'm reading this. It's like, it's cocktail voices. A- everywhere he goes, people are muttering, and guess what the subject's about? Him. Like, he's a hot topic. Like, this is not some isolated deal. Everybody in Jerusalem is wondering if Jesus is going to show up, and everybody's forming an opinion. And guess what? Opinions here, like armpits. There's a couple, and they, they stink, frankly. There's two opinions about Jesus. The first one is that he's a good man. And the second is that he's an evil man. He's leading people astray. But neither one of them are right. There's a bunch of confused people. And Jesus will address both of these, the claim that he's good and the claim that he's evil in the verses to come. But what I want you to get is that confused context. There's a lot of misunderstanding. And guess what? Jesus is going to speak up. He's going to make it clear And we're introduced to a new character in the play, if you will. Like if this was a drama, like for one of the first times we have a new character and it's called in your Bible, the people in certain um, translations of God's word, it's called the crowd, but this group, the people, the crowd, they stand in contrast with another group of people. Ready? They're called the Jews. They're like, Oh, I know the Jews. That's Jewish people not as John uses it. When John is talking about the Jews, he's talking about Jewish religious leaders. When he's talking about the crowd, the people, whatever you see there in your Bible, it's just like the average Jane and Joe, Uh, the average uh, dude on the street, the, the hoi polloi, the everyday ordinary folks, okay? So, keep in mind, Even though the religious group can sometimes fit into the crowd, they're different. And this is what I want you to know. The crowd, they're just confused about him. The religious leaders, they're not confused. They hate his guts. So I'm clarifying to start off with. They already want to kill him. The rest of the crowd, they're like, I wonder if this is really who he says he is kind of thing. And so we see that it is in this confusing context that Jesus clandestinely comes to Jerusalem. And against the thought that he's merely a good man, notice how he answers in verses 15 to 18. Now, this is dense. I'm going to warn you, like wake up for a second. 15, like verses 15 to 18 here, like if you're just on cruise control right now, you will not remember a single word I say at lunchtime. Because it's really hard to understand. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read a verse, and then I'm going to make a comment. And then I'm going to read the next verse, and then make a comment. Okay? So just like hang with me and think about it, because this is clarifying something really important. What do we do with people who misunderstand Jesus merely as a good man? Which, by the way, would be the majority of the non-believers that you come in contact with. How does Jesus handle it? Well, we'll go verse by verse. It says in verse 14 that, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple, temple and began teaching. So here he is. He's made his way into the temple precincts. He started teaching. The temple was a huge complex. Uh, he finds himself in the exact same spot where he sh- like stood up the religious leaders the time before. He has not been back to Jerusalem till that time. So he's, where, he's at ground zero. He's where everything went down. Now, that being said, he just starts teaching, but he doesn't tell anybody who he is. Remember, he's not that identifiable. Look at verse 15. The Jews, as he's teaching, therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Because of his cover, right? The, the Jews, those religious leaders who are trying to kill him, they're, at first they don't recognize him. They're just, they expected him with his entourage. But here he is by himself. And they're like, wow, this is a pretty good teacher. This is pretty good stuff. But then they find something kind of weird. They're like, "This guy's not quoting any other rabbis." Like normally, a rabbi, or even a budding rabbi, a student was normally under the sponsorship or the patronage of somebody older. Like it was really clear, like what brand they were. They they wanted to make it clear that I'm connected to you know Rabbi Ben so and so or whatever. Jesus never identified himself with a rabbi, nor did he, like a good researcher would in our own day, use footnotes. He wasn't citing other sources. He wasn't quoting other rabbis. And they're like, this teaching's phenomenal. It's really good, and he doesn't have any of this. So Jesus clarifies something. He doesn't tell them who he is. This is all he says. Verse 16, Jesus answered, "'My teaching is not mine.'" but his who sent me. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. Well, who sent you? Now we're going to get to finally find out who his rabbi is. Are you ready for it? Who's his rabbi? Verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. All right, Uh, now they're starting to wake up to what's going on. At first they don't know who he is and now they're like, "Uh uh-oh, I've heard this before. I remember when we got our rear ends handed to us by him publicly a few months ago when he was actually saying that his teaching is from God and ours was from man. And Jesus says, hey, I'll just lay it down. You want to know who I am? You want to know my teaching? Here's how it goes down. If you really want to do the will of God, you will discover that I am the one who is sent from God. Now, notice how he continues down this trail. He gets even more clear about who he is for those who merely thought him to be a good man. Verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus agrees. He he wants to help him. He doesn't tell him straight out. He says, look, Here's how you can know. One, you need to want God's will, and if you want God's will, you'll know that what I'm saying is true. Here's another way you can know whether or not I'm the real thing or a total charlatan. The real thing, he will do nothing but seek God's glory and not his own. So he, he invites them to, like, actually consider, why do you think I'm doing what I'm doing? Do you think I'm doing this because I want to be popular because I'm looking for a following, or do you think I'm doing this because I want God to look good? And that is a a question that we all need to ask ourselves when trying to assess if Jesus is indeed who he said he is. Is he just looking to amass a following for himself, or is he someone that's devoted to God's glory? I mean, there's all kinds of individuals, gurus, rabbis, teachers, specialists in our own culture that seem really compelling, but the way that you know that they're ultimately not where you go for eternal life advice is because they're in it for themselves. Has anybody ever seen a Tony Robbins seminar? Okay, a few of you have admitted it. Oh, wow, we, even a little one has seen it. Tony. Awesome. He's the most conceited man on the planet. No offense if you liked him. (laughs) He's obsessed with himself. People come and they they try to propagate ideas to inflate themselves. But when we consider the ministry of Jesus on a whole, was he in this for himself? I'd hardly say that the man who was crucified at the hands of his Roman enemies was in it for himself. He did everything that he did for the glory of the Father. All throughout the book of John, he's constantly talking about, hey, I'm not here on my own will, I'm here for God's will. I'm here for the Father. I do what I do to glorify the Father. And he says, look, if you discern about me that I'm really for the Father, you know that I'm right and you know that I'm true. And if you think that I'm in this for myself, I'm a fake. But the major principle at play here is you'll find out when you really want to. Hey, you know this to be true. Have any of you ever tried to teach, like maybe uh, one of your your children, uh, a particular job or responsibility? I'm just thinking of something as simple as uh, cooking or how to put dishes away or cutting the grass if the child is not interested it's like all right you cut the grass in these lines you go back and forth or we get up the clippings don't run over anything please you know it's pretty basic clean and green that's what we're aiming for with the grass and then you go out there and you're like you thought it was a pretty good explanation and yet the kid like wrote his name in the grass (laughs) it's like i'm done They're like, no, 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 I said actually go this way. Oh, I forgot. Oh, my bad. I I don't know what was going on. I I thought that you just wanted me to hit the high spots, you know, kind of thing. I'm not speaking from experience. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Look, it ain't just me. I did it. As a kid, there's some things somebody would try to teach me. I'm like, I don't really want to learn that. I don't want to be an expert dishwasher. when when it so happens that, you know, dishes go in the wrong places or somebody was just rushing through or they only put like five things in the dishwasher as opposed to filling it up or whatever, like I get it because I don't want to learn that. But wait till it's your stinking yard. (laughs) Wait till you're getting paid for it. And all of a sudden it's like, what did my dad what was I doing again? Oh, yeah, I'm supposed to follow these lines. Oh, I have to get up the clippings. Oh, I shouldn't run over this guy's yard ornaments. You know, whatever. Like, it all of a sudden comes back to you, and you're like, I really want this. Like, when it's your dishes, like, it's your house, and the stuff in the, the sink stinks to high heaven, and you're like, this is a problem. And you're going to invite some friends over and you don't want them to think that you're a slob. All of a sudden, all that stuff your mama told you about rinsing it off and how to fill it up and how to like, make sure you use the drying agent because that helps clean it. You know, all those things all of a sudden come to mind because you really want to know it. That's exactly what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. Sometimes we assume that people misunderstand Jesus because there's some type of like intellectual problem. Friends, I've said this Five weeks now it seems like but let me just say it one more time because it's here again it's not an intellectual problem it's a heart problem they don't want to know who jesus is and, but guess what here's the deal you're going to talk to some people who do want to know they don't want to go to hell they want to go to heaven they know that their life is a hot mess and they need someone to rescue them like and they're like please just tell me and that's what jesus is saying whoever really wants to do the will of God, they're going to know. They're going to know who I am, and they're going to know that my teaching comes from the Father. I I, I want to help you here. If you're not in Christ today, Jesus is not just one among the many. He is the one that actually gives us the very words of God. And if you really want to know that, you seek it out honestly, and you will find out. People misunderstand his teaching. See, they're used to just quoting other people, amassing footnotes, like giving credit to where credit's due, that kind of thing. But what we need is something from above to interject, to radically invade our life, and that comes in the teaching of Jesus. He is not just a moral philosopher, a religious figure. He is none other than the representation of God the Father. He is his very Son. And so we keep in mind that People miss it only because they don't want to get it. I'm out of time to beat this up further, but John 5, 39 to 44, you can go back and read, where Jesus tells them, the reason why you don't know who I am is because you're so obsessed with yourself. I say that to you, unbeliever. You can say, I don't really get it, I don't really get it, I don't really get it all you want to, but the truth is you may not want to get it because you like your life the way it is. But let me challenge you, you're missing out on the words of eternal life. And for those of you who are in Jesus, I just want to affirm something for you and assure you that as much as possible, what we want to do is to continue to give people the authoritative words of the risen Christ. That's what gets the job done. That's why we sing and pray and preach and picture the word of God in Christ in this gathering. We do it every week. That's why we lean in on the word for ministry to children and teens. We don't have to entertain them. We don't have to do some kind of like crazy competition to get everybody to show up. The Word of God is what does the work, but it's not only with our ministry to children and teenagers, but it's also why we need to be deploying the Word within our families and our conversations with friends. I was so encouraged when one of our elders gave a testimony in um, our prayer time this morning about somebody he was witnessing to, and he said, oh yeah, I gave them a copy of uh, the Gospel of John with little notes in it so that they could just be reading the Bible for themselves. Praise God, that's what will get the work done. It, it, it's, if somebody really wants to know God's will, they will see that Jesus' word is something different. It is something authoritative. G.K. Chesterton said it this way, the Christian ideal, we're talking about here, the Word of God in Christ. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Friend, lean in on the teaching of Jesus. It is authoritative. It gets the job done. So, misunderstanding the Messiah is not merely a matter of, of timing and teaching, but this will be quick. Here's the last misunderstanding. Misunderstanding. It's also a matter of task. People misunderstand who Jesus is insofar as they understand what he, misunderstand what he came to do. He had a task. He had something in mind. Well, look at verse 19. At this point, Jesus goes on the offensive, right? It, they're starting to learn who he is, and now he just goes into full-blown attack mode. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Notice this. He's charging them of breaking the law again, and like naturally, they're going to respond. You know these people. Um, okay, we'll prove it. What do we do? Now, this is funny to me because he just says it to the crowd, but you find out who he's really speaking to. The crowd's not trying to kill him; they don't know who he is yet. But the Jewish leaders in the crowd, they are trying to kill him, and so naturally, they respond in verse twenty. The, the people at large, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? By the way, saying that you have a demon is what we, in our anti-supernatural age, in our skeptical age, we blame everything on psychology. So the cultural equivalent of this would be like saying, you have personality disorder. You're schizophrenic. Now, I'm not delving into the relationship right now between uh, the spiritual world and the medical world, but I will say that it is likely that a lot of what is called dissociative identity disorder could be what the Old, New Testament and Old Testament depicted as a demon possession. We just gave it a, a fancy scientific label, but the point is not getting off track, staying on track. They think he's crazy. They think he's demon-possessed, but guess who really knows what's going on It's those Jews. Notice that he knows they're listening in, the Jewish leaders, and he says to them, I know why you're trying to kill me. I remember when I was here last time, I embarrassed you. Remember we read John 5, 1 through 18, healed the guy on the Sabbath, and they thought that he was making himself equal with God. They're like, you're going down. You broke the law. And Jesus says, no, you don't understand the task. You don't understand the law. You broke the law. I don't break the law. I rise above it. I accomplish what it actually is intended to accomplish. And he uses a brilliant analogy. Any of you in the room, just a poll here for a second, like debate? Anybody? You like debate? It's okay. I'm not saying you're contentious. All right. Okay, good. A few people. Now, I'm not just talking about like, you know, arguing with somebody on Facebook, I'm talking like formal debate, like logic. Jesus exercises some masterful logic here. If you're familiar with the parlance, it's uh, from lesser to greater argumentation. What he's going to do is going to establish something on a small level and then he's going to blow it up. He said, if it's right on a small level, it's going to be right on a big level. So with that in mind, I, I want to see if you can see it as you're reading in your own copy of God's Word. Notice how he answers them in verse 21. I did one work that healing of the lame man on the Sabbath, and you all marvel at it, you were shocked. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. All right, now are you getting what's going on here? He's saying that you got two laws that can contradict one another sometimes. It was required in Jewish culture on the eighth day for a boy to be circumcised. So, what happens then when that falls? That eighth day falls on the Sabbath. It was no contest. Every rabbi of that day said, Oh, well, because circumcision is purifying this young boy, we will do that on the Sabbath. When the two laws conflict, The one that gives life supersedes. So Jesus knows that they agree with that. That's what they do. And he said, all right, think about it. You do this all the time for the the male reproductive organ on a Sunday. Like, what does it mean when I heal the entire body? Judge with right judgment and not just by appearances. Basically saying, you guys are seeing what you want to see. You know very well, like you've made rules that help you win, but they miss the point. We all know what it's like to have entered into certain societies or contexts in which, all right, just do these seven things and you're going to be good with God. They had their little list of rules, but they were missing the point. Jesus was coming not just to follow all the little rules. He did follow the rules. He did obey the law, but he exercised the point of the law, not just the particulars. He was bringing life. And they just wanted death. They just wanted the checklist. He's saying, you've got to get the whole picture. See what I'm ultimately trying to accomplish. My task is not just to teach you to follow rules. My task is to give you life in a miraculous and supernatural way. And the truth is, some people misunderstand Jesus. Even here in this room, this morning, because you may think that Jesus came to give you some stinking rules. That's a quick way to hell, friends. He came to fulfill the rules for you and to supernaturally provide the life that you yourself could never get. Don't misunderstand his task. He wasn't coming adding a new checklist. He was coming to do the checklist and then to credit it to your account. He died to pay the penalty for all the ways that you failed. He rose again to show that God had received that payment and given life to all who would believe in him. And if you turn from your sin, from your checklist doing and trust in him alone, you have eternal life. Don't misunderstand it. It is all in what he has accomplished, not in what you can do. And so it is a fundamental misunderstanding of who Jesus is. And it is the difference between life and death, eternal. I think we need to close. But a a little picture would probably be appropriate. I, I just want you to understand from this text that the understanding evidences relationship. Understanding evidences relationship. If, if you truly understand Jesus for who he is, like it it evidences that you have a real relationship with him. But guess what? There are some people who claim to know Jesus and they operate on this faulty expectation of who he is evidencing that they don't have a relationship just a simple picture Uh, my wife Tanya was up here singing today I think she was wearing a yellow dress I'm partially colorblind. I'm not sure am I right okay some people are shaking their heads yes Uh, she has brown hair brown eyes she's about this tall Could could you imagine that if I was, like, sitting across from her on, like, a date, let's say, like, this coming Friday night, we go out, we have a great time, and I just start talking about, you know what, Tanya, I just love your short blonde hair. It's just so vivacious. And those blue eyes, they're, like, straight from heaven. I don't think anybody <laughs> that, is, that is in the room is thinking, there is no relationship there. <laughs> this dude's living in a fantasy land. If he wanted one thing and she's that, i mean and yet, is that not what people do? They have turned Jesus into exactly what they want him to be. And everyone's like, hey, you see my relationship with Jesus? That ain't Jesus. That's an idol. If you've created for yourself a Jesus who works on your timetable who's just another religious guru, and who gives you a checklist so that you can earn your own righteousness, it ain't Jesus. Some of us are in relationship with Jesus and we just, we just misperceive certain things about him. We don't say the opposite. We just don't fully embrace who he is. I would say for those of you who are in Christ, embrace the fact that his timetable is different than yours. Don't resist it, embrace it. Embrace the fact that his very words carry the authority of God the Father. Lean in. And embrace the fact that he hasn't given you a checklist. He fulfilled the checklist on your behalf. And he has supernaturally given you life. And pass that on to us. And so we end where we began with those two most important questions who is Jesus who is Jesus to you if you can't answer that with any certainty I pray that you would talk to one of the church members here before you leave today and if you can after we pray Let's glory and revel in Christ. Not Christ as we imagine him to be, but Christ as he has evidenced himself in this very text. Let's pray. Father, I think that in a crowd this size that there are some who do not yet trust in Jesus for who he has revealed himself to be. And because of that they're under your eternal wrath and they will suffer eternal death unless you give them eyes to see and hearts to love and trust the Jesus of the scriptures, Jesus as he has revealed himself. Give sight today, O God give life, or may some here even now be converted, transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And for those of us who are looking to Jesus and and love Him, may we grow in our appreciation for who He is, His timing, His teaching, His task, and out of an abundance of love and gratitude for who He is, May we effectively testify of him to others, even this week. Help us to do that even now in song. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.